0: And I'm terrified to start a new year. Anybody feel the same way? Like you got both feelings inside of you simultaneously? Uh, I think the last four years have taught us not to come boldly into January 1st. Maybe sneak in the back door uh, a little bit. But there are a lot of ways that you can be faithful. Um, one of the things I spent the last two weeks, or the last two days, excuse me, the last two days training church planners uh, who are coming here from around the world. Cameroon, El Salvador, uh, Ethiopia, other places, and uh, it's one of the things that we talked about. In light of the world, you may succeed or you may fail, but if you are obedient to Jesus and faithful to Jesus, you win, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it may appear like, and so I want to give you some ways as we get started in 2024, just here in the house that we want to help you do that, one in, in just small group ministry and one in service. And then I want to introduce our speaker for this, this morning. So small groups, we've got some new small groups emerging. You need to be in a small group. got a lot of you that were not here at this time last year that are a part of this family now, but you're still just kind of coming and you're hearing me, and I'm gratified by that, but that's not enough. Your church family is there. I mean, imagine if you had a family, but you only saw them for an hour a week, and you didn't really share meals with them, and you really didn't get to know them. You, you need to be—we we grow with. Anytime the word grow is there, especially in, in our relationship to Christ, it's always in relationship with other people. Uh, and the primary way we do that is through our small groups. And, and Charity Ratsford has asked me to let you know that she's in the process of, of trying to bring some into emergence— that are around hobbies. So some of you w- are woodworkers. Some of you you, you, you got a Harley or a Honda or something and you like to ride. Some of you uh, like to beat the, the ground with sticks and yell and, and chase a little white ball, which used to be called witchcraft, but now it's called golf, right? <laughs> Um and so yeah maybe that 's one, one of your things. Some of you like to dance. We already have a swing dancing group that 's that's that 's happening and merging now they now they won 't let me in uh, there There are standards right it, but but I guarantee all of you are above me, and you don 't have the the two left feet, two left hands, and a left sided head that I have and so uh if you want to learn how to do that with your significant other or you just want to come in and 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 learn uh that that opportunity is there, but charity she 'll be Uh, she'll have a lanyard out here in the foyer after the service at the new here table. If you'd like to be involved in something like that, or if you go, you know what I've got, I want other people with a common interest. You're going to talk about the Lord together. You're going to pray together. All those elements will be there, but it'll, it'll center kind of around just sort of those common interests that we, that we do together when we're not working the things that, that bring us Uh, gratification. So I hope that that you'll be a part of that uh, if you're not already a part of a small group. The second thing is this week is covenant shift in cooperation with Jefferson County Community Ministries to host the cold weather shelter. So our neighbors here in Jefferson County in the larger Panhandle area who do not have a roof over their heads, how many of you have looked at the weather forecast this coming week? Yeah. I wouldn't want to be out in that either. And so we are honored and privileged to be able to host them this week. They slept here last night uh, upstairs, and we've got folks, teams of folks that are, I think they're fixing breakfast for them every morning, uh, and JCCM staff are here, but we actually need some more help with that. Sometimes it may just be coming in for an hour or two in the evening and just spending some time with these folks and getting to know them or helping the breakfast crew, and then of course coming and, and, and spending a night in the church uh and so if you would like to do that Ellen McComb will be out right there next to charity in between services wearing a lanyard uh, and she would uh, she would love to hear from you so just a couple of ways that you can jump right in and get involved here at Covenant as we begin 2024 together this is one of those unique Sundays in which you know after taking a Sunday off for the snow because we just the, the roads were just so questionable, and we were we were a little bit concerned about that. Uh, usually, when you do something like that in a church of of this size, you just kind of have to, you know, you, you just sort of have to cut your losses and move on. Very rarely do you get a repeat, uh, especially when it involved a guest speaker and the one that we have uh, the honor of hearing today. He's going to be on a plane to Central Asia here in a couple of days, and, and so his schedule's busy. Our schedule is busy, and so uh, when we had to make that unfortunate call last week, I sent Chris Seiple a text, and I said, hey, I'm actually not starting my new series until the 21st. Can, would you like us to bump this? Can you do it? Because I think we can actually make this work, and he had to check with some of uh, his responsibilities, but I'm delighted to tell you that, that Chris Seiple is here today. Many of you have heard him before. He's a friend of Covenant. He's been my friend for a number of years. He is president emeritus of an organization called the Institute for Global Engagement. Uh, it's an organization that works to build environments around the world that promote religious freedom, among other things. Now, there, there's a couple of ways you can do religious freedom. We talked about this dinner last night. You can you can advocate for it, and and we should, which is from the outside, speak to other places around the world that that don't have religious freedom. But the real way to bring it about is to do the kind of work that Chris has done for decades, and that is to to go into those areas and walk alongside those peoples and those governments and those cultures and, and help them to, to understand this. Uh, he has an interest in that because he understands the unique role, probably in a way that our own government doesn't, that religious conviction plays in the world and, and in world relations. And the, the importance of that for, for bringing peace to a, a world that I think we all know is, is, is really kind of on the edge right now. Uh, and as a former Marine, he understands that. Uh, he served at the State Department. He's now on the Templeton Religion Trust. Uh, he also, I might happen to mention this, uh, is, is a professor of comparative religion at the University of Washington. So some of you may want to console him in light of last week's loss to Michigan. Um, but here's, here's why I wanted to start the year with Chris, because I, I tell you guys all the time, you'll, you'll hear it, some of you in our new members' class today, and discover you're going to hear me share my heart, and you'll hear me say this again. We don't just need pastors, we need the whole church if we're going to accomplish the Great Commission. We need everybody. And that doesn't mean everybody's called to ministry, everybody's doing full-time ministry. It means everybody's where they belong, on the grid of society. Chris embodies that truth as well as any other person that I've ever met. And, And I'm so glad just to know him personally. You're about to hear from somebody that I have learned a great deal from. I'm going to be 52 years old in a week. And as I think about my life and what life I have left, and God willing, there's a lot of it, and I'm excited about it, but sometimes I think, I have so much to learn at my age. I really believe I'm probably going to see Jesus before I learn everything I'm supposed to learn about the world he died for. And since he died for it, how incumbent is it upon me to know it and to love it? And and Chris has taught me how to do that. He's one of those people. He's not a pastor, but his expertise together with his relationship with Jesus, I I would not know what i do about that world without learning from people like him. And I'm excited that you get to learn from him too today. Would you welcome Dr. Chris Seipel to coming up?
1: Good morning, Covenant. <laughs> it's nice to be understood. Uh, thank you, Joel, for that introduction. That is a nice summary of who I am and what I do. I appreciate that very much. And I appreciate the chance to be out to dinner, as you referenced with your wife, Amy, last night. Uh, I know you guys know this, but I hope you really appreciate it. You have a very special couple in Joel and Amy. There is a warmth of wonder and wisdom in them, and they are leaders in their own context, and they are just truly uh, a joy to be with, and it's a privilege to count them as friends and to learn from them, as I did last night. I also want to give a special thank you to my men's Bible study, who made the trip up from Warrington, Virginia today. They are back here someplace, I think, and uh, we meet every morning at 7 a.m., every Saturday morning, we're not that faithful, <laughs> at 7 a.m., and uh, they, their names, and I wanna call them out because they're here and they're dear friends, are Patrick, Kirk, uh, Eric, And the chosen one of the group is Charlie, because Charlie is from West by God, Virginia. (laughs) We do have this meeting at 7 a.m. on Saturday so they can play golf afterwards. And if you wouldn't mind helping them out after the service, they're looking for a place to play golf after the service today. They're not as smart as they look. But work with them. Love them anyway. That is what we're called to do. And thank you for having me back. You know who I am. And you still invited me back. That's grace right there. Now, it's, it's difficult for a type A, this guy, to be sensitive to, let alone hear the word of the Lord. Very difficult. But when Joel called me and said, hey, would you come back? I had this very distinct feeling. I'm not saying it was the word of the Lord. I'm just saying this was my feeling. I hope it was the word of the Lord. Two words came to mind, covenant and antitum. What am I supposed to do with that? I've been asking myself that question a lot. I think I've answered part of it, so that's what we're going to talk about today. But the fundamental issue and the fundamental question that I want us to wrestle with today, as we think about covenant, your name, and Antietam, your neighborhood, and what it means to have a covenant in a church, in a community, in a country, what does it mean to be a covenantal people? What does it mean to keep the covenant? That's what we're going to talk about today. So my plan here is to think about, what is a covenant? How does it differentiate with a contract? How does God use it? And then illustrate this in the real world. How do these ideas walk the ground in the cold light of day? I am a former uh, Marine infantry officer, so I like to ask those questions. If it ain't real and doesn't work, then I don't want any part of it. But we're going to look at two case studies. One is from the Old Testament, Micah and Hezekiah. In the time of Judah, a hundred years before Babylon wipes them out and then deports them. The second case is going to be with our own history. The Civil War, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And along the way, I want you to think about a few things. One, what's the difference between faith and religion? Faith, the mystery, the majesty, the mercy of God that results in a humility and an honesty, where religion is this callous certainty, this judgmentalism that results in pride and prescription. What's the difference, if any, second thing, between a spiritual and a secular history? We always think about the secular history. We always think about the geopolitics. Here's the history, here are the dates, what we study in books. But it's always a spiritual history. We forget the spiritual history. We forget that God is working. We forget that it is His story. History. We forget that He's the protagonist in His story because He's looking to redeem the world. And we should take comfort in that because we're in a heck of a mess. Our country and the world right now So we should take comfort that the God of history is working in response to covenantal faithfulness. And the last thing we'll wrap up and conclude by talking about, well, I'll make three suggestions to you. And they're very simple. Keep the covenant, keep the faith, and keep the Constitution. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of meeting freely. Not a lot of your people have that freedom around the world. We do not take it for granted. We're grateful for this country that we live in. My prayer is that these words be your words, your words for your people, and that these words aid in their discernment about what it means to be a covenantal people, to have a covenant with, your, with this church, within this church, with this community, with our country. And that somehow, through these words, your words, that we know Jesus a little bit better in the new year than we did in the last year. And if we dare, Lord, help us know you better each day than we did the day before. So we give you this time. And in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen. All right. What is a covenant? What is that comes from the Old Testament? It comes from the Hebrew word berit, B-E-R-I-T. And it's a relationship between the king, God, and his people. It's an unequal relationship. He provides his, voluntarily provides for us, and we voluntarily submit in obedience, as Joel referenced. Obedience is success for the Christian. The fancy-pants words for this is suzerain. A suzerain relationship, a suzerain covenant is where there's great power in one relationship and the other relationship does not have that power. A covenant is how God works with His people across time and space. How He works with those He has made in His image. That unique creation that He has made in His image, also known as humans. Take a look around, you might see one. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is conditional. Keep the covenant and He'll keep you. The New Covenant is unconditional. Grace abounds. Confess your sins, but grace abounds. You you no longer have to pay the the penalty of of sin, which is death, because Christ is risen. Put another way, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament in the Bible, anticipates and predicts Jesus. The New Testament, the New Covenant announces and presents him. That is our Bible. That is history, his story. There are five covenants in the Bible. You know the first one? Noah. first covenant comes to Noah. God promises not to destroy the land or the earth again. And he gives a sign. The rainbow. And that becomes the chief characteristic of God's covenants with his people. He is a promise-keeping God. And I hope you think about that every time you see a rainbow. He keeps His promises. Not always the way that we would like, but He keeps them. Second covenant comes to Abraham. Comes to him three times. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. You're going to this land. You're going to occupy this land. You're going to have many children like the stars. And the mark of the covenant is circumcision. That covenant is made anew to his grandson, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in Bethel. Bethel, remember, Jacob's laying there. There's a stairway to heaven. That doesn't come from Led Zeppelin, that comes from the Bible. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord says to Jacob, You will be a, commu- a, a nation will come from you, and a community of nations will come from you. That's Genesis 35 third covenant that's with Moses mount Sinai ten commandments if you but keep these commands i will make you a nation of priests fourth covenant david second samuel 7 i will make and establish an enduring throne your descendants will reign forever And the fifth covenant is Jesus, the New Covenant. Predicted in Jeremiah 31-31 in the Old Testament. Presented as Jesus in His birth. Predicted by Isaiah. This is why the first verse of the New Covenant in the first chapter of the first Gospel is... This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, Son of David, fourth covenant son of Abraham. It's a whole story. This is how they understood themselves. That part's not open for interpretation. We have to understand them as they understand themselves so we can understand us and our relationship with God as we think about what a covenant is. Now, how do you think about a covenant? How do you think about it? Like, what's contract covenant? How does all that work? And if you want to think about covenants in the Old Testament, the best person to ask is a rabbi, actually. The Jews have a pretty good understanding of the Hebrew Bible because it's their Bible. They're prophets. And my favorite rabbi is Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I met him once, and he's, I wrote many books. He wrote a book right after September 11, 2001, called The Dignity of Difference. And he says this about covenants. A covenant is what you give. A contract is what you get. And he says this specifically, where contracts are about the self, covenants are about the larger grouping in and through which we develop identity. They are about the we in which I discover the I. Covenantal relationships are sustained by trust, not of interest or advantage, but of belonging. Think about love your neighbor as yourself, right? You love God because you, and therefore you love your neighbor. I find my own identity In the context of God and His story, and in the context of my neighbor, He commands me to love. That's the cross, vertical and horizontal. Put differently, the more I love those made in His image, the more I become in His likeness. Day by day, a little bit more today than yesterday, that is so hard to keep, and none of us do it, but we try. We got to try. Sachs, Jonathan Sachs, stresses this about the covenants. He says there's got to be an ongoing conversation because covenants need to be expressed in broad terms, whose precise meanings are the subject of ongoing debate and a reference point for policies and practices. What he means is it's got to be worked out in that particular location, in that context. There can't be cookie cutter approaches to the application of a covenant. A covenant requires faith, a contract does not. A covenant is about the fellowship of faith. A contract is about religion and rules. There's only black and white, and there's a cookie-cutter application each and every time. So what's faith? The best definition we have, the only definition really is Hebrews 11.1. 11, 1. Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. We've all heard that but what does it mean? What does it look like? For me, there's a spectrum of understanding faith. There's the first, on one end of the spectrum, there's the examples of Caleb and Esther. You remember Caleb when he comes back from the land? Numbers 13, let's go forth and take the land for we surely can. He knows God's a promise-keeping God, and everybody says no. Esther puts her life on the line, goes before the king uninvited to save her people from Haman. What's beautiful about Caleb in that situation and Esther is there is no mention of the word God. Faith so completely permeates who they are that they don't even have to say it out loud. They are full, fill, filled with God and faith in Him because He keeps His promises. At the other end of the spectrum, though, is the faith of desperation, which is what probably most of us, at least me, relate to. Think of the centurion on behalf of his servant. Think about the man dropped down through the roof. Think about the woman with internal bleeding. Think about the lepers. Think about Peter after the disciples decided, many of the disciples were leaving because the, the teachings were too hard. And Jesus says to Peter, Are you going to leave too? And, and, and Peter says, Out of desperation, Where would we go, Lord? This is John 6, 68. You have the words of eternal life. You're the Holy One of God. You're the fulfillment of the covenant. And then there's Abraham, Genesis 22. He's been given three covenants, three variations of the same thing Genesis 12, Genesis 12, 15, and 17. But Genesis 22, and of course, Abraham doesn't think like this, but Genesis 22, he's asked to sacrifice his. His son, Isaac. Isaac is the promise. That's the tangible proof of things unseen. Through Isaac, all the nations are going to be blessed. Your descendants will be like stars. And he's being asked to kill them. And and Abraham goes to the region of Moriah. Same region, same mountain, where the temple will be built and Jesus will be tried and executed and resurrected. And as he approaches And as he gets to the place, Isaac asks, where's the wood? And Abraham, on or near where Jesus would be on the cross, he responds, God himself will provide the lamb. Abraham raises his hand. You know the story. The angel of the Lord stays it, stops it, and says what? Genesis 22.10. Now that I know you fear the Lord. Now that I know that you are in so awe of who He is and that He is a promise-keeping God and you are faithful to Him. Now that I know that. Then the angel goes on to remind him and assure him that all the covenants mentioned before would be kept. Now that I know you are faithful. Why is it important to be fearful and faithful to the Lord? The reading this morning, my translations summarize psalm 25 14 this is king david speaking an oracle of the lord as peter says in acts 2 the lord confides in those who fear him he shares his covenant with them we keep the covenant of belonging and giving through christ by being faithful all right well that's great what does it mean in the cold light of day what does it mean in the application? Let's look at these two examples with a loose analogy between Micah and Hezekiah in his time and Frederick Douglass and Abraham in their time. Here's the secular history. 3,000 years ago, this guy named David declares himself king, secular now, and he unites the tribes, the Hebrew tribes, into a state because states need to be consolidated because they've got to defend themselves, Right? That's the anthropological, secular reasoning. He has a son, Solomon. He's a pretty good guy, but at the end, when he dies in 931 B.C., 931 years before the birth of Christ, the 12 tribes go back to being tribes, and they split up. There's 10 tribes in the north. There's two tribes in the south. One's called Israel. One's called Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah. Then it starts to get tricky because they're really not keeping the covenant. This would be a great Netflix series, by the way. <laughs> king Ahaz is king of, the, of Judah. And he's approached by the king of Syria, Damascus, and the king of Israel. And they say, Hey, we realize that we're trapped between the Egyptians to the south, a longtime empire, and these, new go- these newcomers who are pretty fierce, the Assyrians, and they keep trying to close us in. Assyria's in the north of Iraq. Why don't you work with us? And Ahaz says, Nah. I think I'm going to go with the Assyrians. I'm going to go against my fellow Jews. And the Assyrians come down and they wipe out Israel, 722, 721 B.C. Gone forever from the, from the map of history until 1948. Then they deport the Jews back to Nineveh, modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq, the capital of Assyria. Assyrians say, hey, this is pretty easy. They make another run at Jerusalem and uh, 20 years later, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, his king at that time, and they hold off. But the Jews keep not repenting. They keep violating the covenant. And 80 years later, the Babylonians kill the Assyrians and they take Judah and they deport the Jews from Jerusalem and Judah back to Babylon, southern Iraq. No more Israel. That's the secular history. Okay, big empires take out small ones, no newsflash, and then they make slaves of them. That's what people do. Not today, though, right? Look at Russia Ukraine. Ukraine's big empire, Russia's big empire takes on Ukraine, takes the Ukrainian children and and deports them to Russia to make them better Russians. This stuff is still happening because we're still human, whether we like it or not. Now what about the spiritual timeline where the global God who created the world and is sovereign over human affairs responds to the people who are faithful in the covenant to Him? What about the spiritual history? Well, let's go through that and let's start at this turning point when the Assyrians are about to come down. Talk about Micah. Micah's in the 740s, but in the 760s, Amos and Hosea are prophesying against the king of Israel because he's not keeping the covenant. Amos says... The Lord says through Amos, I despise your religious feast and assemblies. You're religious. It's no longer faithful. You lift the shrine of the king over God. So let justice roll. This is Amos 5. Let justice roll. There's no time for mercy. You don't even... the Wages of sin or death. Let justice roll. Hosea has this memorable phrase about the king of Israel. The king of Israel will float away like a twig on the surface of the waters. Not exactly a resume item there. So the 740s come around, and Micah says the same thing that Amos and Hosea say. And they prophesy about Israel, and Micah says, "You, you, Israel, will become a heap of rubble. And because of, quote, your incurable wound, because you do not keep the covenant, Judah's going to be taken out too. And in fact, when King Ahaz, remember when he makes that deal with the Assyrians and they take out Israel? The Lord says through Isaiah, to King Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And then two chapters later, I was Isaiah 7, go to Isaiah 9. Isaiah prophesizes that one who will honor Israel, the prince of peace, a king with faithfulness to the covenant will come. His name is... Emmanuel, God with us. Now when you read the Old Testament, you read words, and let's be honest, at least me, your eyes glaze over. You're just like, oh man, what do these things mean? You know, we just went through Christmas. It's like the nativity scene. We have all these like, pretty pristine figures, but there's no poop in the stalls. Right? This is a complex geopolitical moment and God decides through Isaiah to prophesy the coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of the covenant. Complex geopolitical times just like ours, ours, ours right now. It's messy. It's mucked up. There's manure everywhere. Keep the covenant. So when the son of Ahaz comes to power, Hezekiah, he listens to Micah prophesizing and he repents. How do we know this? Again, how do we understand them as they understood themselves at that time? Well, read Jeremiah. He's the last prophet within Judah before they're deported to Babylon. And in in Jeremiah, it says this. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah, actually put Micah to death? Did Micah not fear the Lord and plead for the favor of the Lord? And the Lord relented? But we are committing a great evil against our own lives. We're not keeping the covenant. That's a definition of religion. That's Jeremiah 26, 19. And what about this Micah guy? What exactly about was, he, was, he, was he mad about because God was telling him to be mad? Well, you've heard of him in this Christmas season. He prophesied the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, right? Micah 5, 2. And you've all heard the phrase, Micah 6, 8, act justly, do mercy, walk humbly with your Lord. Why is he prophesying? Because nobody's doing that. <laughs> it's a famous line because nobody's doing justice, nobody's walking humbly, and nobody's acting justly. What were the specific issues? Religious nationalism. Religious nationalism. The king was above God, just as it was in Amos 5 when Amos prophesies in Israel. It was also materialism, and in the the particular case of Micah, it was the rich religious elites taking away the land from the middle class and the poor. The land was Yahweh's to give. It was God's to give because he gave it to Abraham. Leslie Allen, a a theologian from Fuller Seminary, wrote some years ago, about this society, there was little sign of the fellowship of the covenant being worked out in the community. Religious leaders were misrepresenting God and leading their flocks astray. And then referencing Israel, he says it's the same in Judah, there was, quote, a conflict between prophetic faith and the established religion with its vested interests. And this is the most damning indictment of all. Their easygoing idea of religion was to chain God to their service and yet themselves be free of solemn responsibility. In other words, if you don't work out what the covenant means in your particular time and place in history, if you're not faithful to the covenant, you end up worshiping a God that always agrees with you. That's called religion and that's called idolatry. And it gets so bad that you forget to be embarrassed. Jeremiah, the last prophet, while the Jews were still in Jerusalem, said this in Jeremiah 6, You have forgotten how to blush. You are so unrepentant. You are so full of religious nationalism and materialism, and you think you're honoring God, but you're not. You are full of idolatry. Nonetheless, Hezekiah does repent, And that's the good news. And Micah ends this way. But as for me, I will be on the watch. And this is a good reminder for us. I will be on the watch for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I will endure the rage of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Yes, You, Lord, will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob in favor to Abraham, which You swore to our forefathers from the days of old. He calls back the covenant. He's going to be faithful to the covenant because he wants the Jews to be a faithfully covenantal people. Now Abraham was the name of another guy who was called to lead his people at a time when there was no sign of the fellowship of the covenant being worked out in the community. In this case, it was the covenant of the American Constitution, a secular document with its practical and spiritual impact whose vision would be restored through Antietam and Lincoln. Now before I go any further, I am not equating our Constitution with the promises of God to Israel. I am saying that there are lessons to be learned and similarities about how covenants are kept. And I am also saying that the God of history works through secular documents and people who do not follow Him. Isaiah 45, Cyrus, though you do not know me, I will use you for my purpose. Pretty simple. All right, so what's the secular history of the Constitution? Then we'll do the spiritual history of the Constitution, okay? 17 September, September 17, 1789, the Constitution is signed. It does not mention slavery. For some, it's a pro-slavery document. For some, it's an anti-slavery document. The South saw it as a pro-slavery document which of course is why they signed the document. They could continue on. There was nothing against it. as our country expands and goes further, we begin to figure out the rules in this gray area. What what does this mean, the covenant of our country, this we the people for a more perfect union? The South was very clear. It's gonna be equal as we go. Compromise of 1820. Missouri can come in as a slave state, made free. Compromise of 1850, after we beat Mexico in a war, what do we do with those lands? We have gotta divide them up equally. But then Lincoln comes along, who is on his own spiritual journey. And he just knows that he's supposed to be against slavery. And that's how he was understood in the South. Christmas Eve, 1860, South Carolina succeeds. Because they understand what Lincoln represents, a threat to them. The South fights the wrong war. They look for decisive battles despite not having numerical superiority. They should have fought the war that George Washington fought. Lose every battle, but win the war because you're still there they fight the wrong war, which gives time to the Union to figure it out. And then use your numer- numerical, support in a war, numerical superiority in a war of attrition. Just wear them down. Wear them down. And that's what happens. That's the Battle of Antietam. Lincoln issues the emancipation uh, on 18, 1 January 1863. And on June 20th, 1863, West Virginia comes into the Union, the only state to succeed from the South. West Virginia, in its own way, is a new covenant. Thirteenth Amendment comes about January 31st, 1865, the abolition of slavery. And then um, Lincoln gives his inaugural march. April, the war ends. April, Lincoln's assassinated. Okay, big deal. People don't like each other. They kill each other. This has been going on for a long time. There's civil wars North, South, North, South Korea, North, South Vietnam, it doesn't matter. What's the big deal? We're just being humans. What's the spiritual history? September 17th, 1789, after signing the document, Benjamin Franklin has asked, is it a republic or a monarchy? A republic if you can keep it. The Constitution is a covenant if you can keep it. And it would be hard to keep because the sin of slavery, sin, 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 the sin of slavery was baked into the secular document. African Americans could not belong to we the people. That should be enormously self-evident, but it is not always the case these days. Harry Stout, an evangelical Christian, a Calvin grad, a Yale historian, wrote a book in 2007 called Upon the Altar, A Moral History of the American Civil War. And basically, he said, hey, it's a war of ideas. It's a war of whose Scripture is going to validate which idea. Slavery or no slavery. He says this about the South. And listen to the words, because it it is reminiscent of the days of Micah and the religious nationalism and materialism. Remember, slaves were property. Clerical leaders, pastors so meshed evangelical Christianity with southern republicanism that one seemingly could not exist without the other. Christianity offered the only terms out of which a national, southern, identity could be constructed and a violent war pursued. God, who had ordained or at least permitted slavery, would never bless the Christ-denying, humanistic north. Remember what Allen Leslie Allen, the theologian from Fuller Seminary, said about Micah's time. Their easygoing idea of religion was to chain God to their service and yet themselves be free of solemn responsibility. Consider the Declaration of Succession. How did they understand themselves? Declaration of Succession by South Carolina. Christmas Eve, 1860. They understood that the North had denounced... Uh, as sinful the institution of slavery quote unquote they understood that a man had been elected quote whose opinions and purposes are hostile to slavery and it can only be quote that the guarantees of the constitution will no longer exist then equal rights of the states will be lost and they end this way quote the north has invested a great political error with the sanction of more erroneous religious belief We appeal to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. They genuinely believed that slavery was a part of the Constitution and the Covenant, and they were going to defend it. That was their religion. The Micah of the time is Frederick Douglass. He's a slave who escaped from the eastern Maryland shore, and not surprisingly... Having been whipped and beaten and witnessed the repeated beating of his mom, he thinks the Constitution is pro-slavery. But Douglas is going to go through, once he gets in the North, well, he's going to go through this intellectual and practical evolution of thought to the point where he understands that the Constitution is a means to freedom and emancipation. In other words, he would discover that the exceptionalism and faithfulness of America is its capacity to self-critique and self-correct. Douglass expresses this in his most famous speech, What what to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Hopefully you've all read this or heard about it before. He delivers it on July 5th in Rochester, New York. There are many dignitaries in 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 the crowd to include the President of the United States. It's 1852. Millard Fillmore is listening to him as he speaks douglas states standing with god and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion i will in the name of humanity which is outraged in the name of liberty which is fettered in the name of the constitution and the bible which are disregarded and trampled upon dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis i can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery the great sin and shame of america he calls out the religious leaders he quotes matthew 23 where jesus says hey you have your religion you keep your tie but you've forgotten the bigger picture mercy judgment justice faithfulness and yet douglas says this the constitution is a glorious liberty document he capitalizes it in his own text this glorious liberty document will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. Douglass concludes by saying this, there are forces in operation which must, which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. And then quoting Isaiah 59, who was alive during the time of Micah, the arm of the Lord is not shortened and the doom of slavery is certain. Remember the definition of faith certainty of things hoped for. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. 1852. Boy, did the arms of the Lord seem shortened on September 17, 1862, 10 years later. The 73rd anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. That was the day, five minutes from here when Antietam was fought. The bloodiest battle of the Civil War. Bruce Catton, the grandfather of modern-day Civil War historians, describes the battlefield this way. Antietam had the fearful distinction of killing and wounding more Americans in one day than any other fight in the war. If there was any essential difference in the fighting qualities of northern and southern soldiers, Antietam fails to show it. It was a headlong combat, unrelieved by any tactical brilliance. A slugging match in the cornfields and the woodlots and on the open slopes of the low hills that came up from the Brown Creek. Neither commanding general did what he wanted to do, actually, once the fighting got firm and and refused to call retreat. And in the end, it was about as close to a draw as so large a battle could be. Caton's fearful distinction here is that 22,720 Americans, north and south, were killed, wounded, or missing in action. The most that have ever died in one day or wounded in one day. That's your neighborhood. But Antietam is famous for two more things that I hope you know and I want to reinforce with you today. Antietam was photographed the first time photography was used in the Civil War. The first time the grim and gruesome nature of American sons and brothers and husbands lying dead together on the ground. Matthew Brady and his team take these pictures and they do an exhibit in New York City one month later. And the New York Times on October 20th writes this long reflection about it. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but you should read it. It's good. But for our purposes, they reflect on this This graphic demonstration of the consequence of sin. And they say this, the sin that was baked into our Constitution. Here lie men who have not hesitated to seal and lamp their convictions with their blood. Men who have flung themselves into the great gulf of the unknown to teach the world that there are truths dearer than life. Wrongs and shames more to be dreaded than death. Antietam was the bloodiest day of the Civil War because of the consequence of sin. But that day was something more because it was that day that the original sin of America began to be redeemed. Abraham Lincoln, the Hezekiah of his day, made a decision to move forward toward repentance and the restoration of the covenant. John Meacham recently wrote a biography of Abraham Lincoln. It's called, And There Was Light. He quotes the diary of Gideon Wells. Gideon Wells is the Secretary of the Navy, he's a member of the Cabinet, and he's a frequent companion of the President. This is what Gideon Wells said in his diary about Lincoln. Lincoln had made a vow, a covenant, that if God gave us the victory in the approaching battle, Antietam, he would consider it an indication of divine will and that it was his duty to move forward in the cause of emancipation. Because of the victory at Antietam, a slugfest that's basically a draw. It's, Lincoln takes it as a victory because Lee withdraws. McClellan's too stupid to pursue, but he takes it as a victory. five days later he issues a preliminary emancipation and on 1 January 1863 the full thing all the slaves in the confederate states are free and they're free to serve in the union army to fight for their freedom on that day September 17th the 73rd anniversary of the signing of the constitution in your neighborhood the covenant of the constitution began to be restored that's why this is a special place. Because all men and women are created equal. Full stop. They all have dignity in God because he made them. In his the second inaugural, on March 4th, 1865, Lincoln sums up the spiritual history. When was the last time you heard a political leader speak like this? These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest all knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. And then referring to the North and the South, he says, both read both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes God's aid against the other. That's the heart of it. And then he quotes Jesus in Matthew 18.7. The King James Version, of course. He says the Almighty has his own purposes. Woe to the world, this is the quote from Jesus: woe unto the world because of the offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. Lincoln goes on. If we shall suppose that that, that American slavery is one of those offenses, which having continued through his God's appointed time, God now wills and God now wills to remove. That he, God, gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God also ascribe to him? And then he says this. Yet, if God wills that it continues until all the wealth piled by the bondsman, the slave, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In other words, if the price we have to pay as a country financially is equal to all the financial profit made on the backs of the slaves for the 250 years to date. And if all the blood taken from the slaves back for these last 250 years is, is paid and the blood on the battlefield, then we will pay that price, north and south together. Why? Because he quotes King David from Psalm 19, 9. because the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. Lincoln, like Micah, concludes with hope for the future. And you've probably heard these words before. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who, shall have been bo- who have borne the battle, and for his widow and orphan, to do all which we may achieve and cherish, a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations, a nation and a community of nations, as he said to Jacob. The covenant needs to be restored because we are all equal in His eyes. God created us all, each with dignity made in His image. Okay, let's wrap up. Three ideas for you guys. Keep the covenant, keep the faith, keep the constitution. Keep the covenant. You worship the living God of history. <laughs> keep it. There are consequences. If you ask for forgiveness, you'll get forgiveness. But He is all present and all knowing and always here in our history. He is acting in His story. And as you keep the covenant, keep in mind that all the suffering that the Jews suffered in the deportation to Babylon and to Assyria out of Israel, and all the suffering of the civil war, and all the inspiration of Micah and Hezekiah, and all the inspiration of Frederick, Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, it's nothing compared to the new covenant He gives you. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and He has the power over life and death. He is the stairway to heaven. The stairway to heaven was the cross. So keep the covenant and never let it be said of this church there was little sign of the fellowship of the covenant being worked out in the community. Let there always be signs of this church working out what it means to be the fellowship of the covenant in the community. Second, keep the faith. Why do you keep the faith? Because keeping the covenant is really hard. Revelation tells us this. Satan will make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you keep the covenant, Satan's coming for you. That's actually a metric of a success. All the more reason to be together as a covenant, as we. Revelation is replete with the, with the reminder, faithfully endure, patiently endure. Remember the acts of the Holy Spirit through the, host- through the apostles, the fifth book of the New Testament. The church never ran from a situation, but they always responded faithfully. Everything was an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Jesus. Remember, it's not our job to win. Victory and vengeance lie with the Lord. Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one: prepare the horse for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. Vengeance is mine, Paul writes in Romans 12, citing the Lord from Deuteronomy 35. And why should we be patient? Because he's patient with us. The new covenant's given during the Last Supper, but just before that, Jesus says this in Luke 22, how I've longed to be with you. Really? Every single person around that table is going to betray him within 24 hours. Peter being Peter is going to do it three times. You wanna be with them? You wanna be with us? Be patient. Lastly, keep the, keep the covenant of the Constitution. As Christians, be faithfully, and do so as, as Christians who happen to be Americans. Not Americans who happen to be Christians. As Christians, faithfully be prophetic regarding our religious leaders in our country. As Americans faithfully live out the duties of citizenship And that essence of our exceptionalism, the capacity to self-critique and self-correct as Frederick Douglass lived out, it starts here, in this church, in this community, the home of Antietam. Trust that he will provide as he provided for Abraham on Mount Moriah, and be fearful and faithful because the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Thank you.
0: are you glad you came today? Amen. My biggest takeaway is this. Our faith is based on covenants so don't treat it like a contract. Did you hear that? So here's the big personal takeaway as as our, our leaders come to lead us in one final song and we prepare to respond in our own hearts to what God has been saying to each one of us. How do you plan on using the name of Jesus in 2024? That's more important than who you vote for. How are you going to leverage and use the name of Jesus, like a covenant or like a contract? Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share His love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.